Will you stand for the reading of God's word? Our scripture this morning is taken from Acts uh, chapter 4, verse 31 through 511. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the, num- the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but that they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me, whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The word of the Lord. Lord, our God is a sun and shield. He gives grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them who walk uprightly. 
giving honor to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and with great thanksgiving to Pastor Gerald on his sabbatical and all the elders who allow this opportunity for me to preach. It's such a joy to be among you and to see the maskless faces and to be able to hug um, and people. No, we're not totally out of the pandemic, but we are so grateful for God's faithfulness and grace toward all of us. Let's uh, take a moment here or a second here to pray, and then let's look at God's word together. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for all of your kindnesses and faithfulness and mercy through the pandemic. May your mercy and comfort be great upon those who have someone missing at the table because of the virus. May you continue to stir up great praise and thanksgiving from our hearts for your kindness giving us grace to survive through this pandemic. And thank you now that we are almost through and can behold one another with maskless faces. We look forward to the day that we will see you face to face. Now, God, would you pour out power upon us so that your church may bring you glory, that the name of Christ may be heard among billions who are yet to hear the message of the gospel. Please exalt the name and power of Jesus. Here, through us, all over Chicagoland, and through our partners in the world. Bless us now to have power to preach and to hear and to do what your word has said. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There are many expectations when you become part of a church. You expect a church to grow. You expect that the pews will fill up because people will want to become members of the place that you like. You might expect comfortable, attractive, and clean facilities for worship and ministry. And you probably hope that there will be good music, relevant preaching, nice people, and not too much talk about money. <laughs> you might wish to find some good, lifelong friendships, or in some cases, you would rather that the nice people leave you alone and not try to get into your personal stuff, so that whatever you want to keep hidden from public view, you can keep hiding it. Now, whether or not you should keep it hidden is a topic for another <laughs> sermon, but... You just want people to mind their own business. These are common expectations of people as they become part of a church. Yet in the scriptures, there are other expectations of a thriving, spirit-empowered church that support the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth and that will increase our personal growth and our joy. Some of these expectations might run counter to the expectations we each bring to church, but they certainly are wrought by the Spirit of God himself. If we make these six expectations our expectations, 
we will gain a church better than what we already experience and have a church that will have a stronger witness in the world. Toward the end of Acts chapter 4 and the beginning of Acts chapter 5, we again see a picture of a church that is full of the Spirit's power as this episode flows from Acts chapter 4 and verse 31. Luke mentions the presence of the Spirit in Acts 5.3 and Acts 5.9, and he speaks of great power being upon the apostles, which is a promise that was given in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Luke intentionally presents a snapshot of the church comparable to the portrait of the church that we see on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the day the Lord poured out His Spirit upon the church for the first time, and the Spirit made its permanent dwelling in the church. In both scenes, the believers are completely united in the mission of the church with their full dispositions of mind, emotions, volition, and purpose. In both Acts 2 and in Acts chapter 4, the believers relinquish an attitude of personal ownership of their possessions for shared ownership of their possessions in which they have all things in common. In both scenes, they make sacrificial actions of selling their goods to give to believers who are in need. And in both scenes, in Acts 2 and Acts 4, power is upon the apostles to give eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Now think with me for a moment of how powerfully the Spirit of God is working in the gathering of the believers here. I mean, there are more than two people gathered in the room and they have no disagreement at all. No one registers a complaint in the church, not until we get to the next chapter. There is no identification according to left, centrist, and right positions in the Roman Senate. There was no debate over time of gatherings, material to study, persons in any aspect of leadership, or the best way to explain how one freely comes to Christ. Paul hadn't yet written Romans, so there was no commentary on the birth of Esau and Jacob or the existence of Pharaoh that would later cause controversy in the church. And back then, there was no pre- or post-question over Jesus' return because they all just said, he's coming soon. Look at the superlatives to see the magnitude of the working of the Spirit of God in this congregation. The full number of those who believed. Everything in common. Great power, writes Luke, and great grace. There was not a needy person among them. Not one person had an unmet financial or material need because those who had means were selling their properties for the sake of caring for others who named the name of Jesus. Luke seems to imply that such care strengthens the work of the church 
by allowing people to focus on giving witness to the resurrection without being distracted by concern for food or shelter. All of the care was voluntary. It was not a communistic mandate. In this scene, we see three of six things one should expect in any spirit-empowered church. One, there should be an expectation that in any local assembly, everyone would strive to agree over the righteous things associated with the working of the gospel inside and outside of the church. This requires giving up many personal preferences, no matter how cherished they might be or how important they are to each of our personal standards. Everyone would have to seek meekness before the Lord and all of your fellow believers. Everyone would have to have a faithful prayer life full of confession and contrition. Everyone would have to submit themselves to the leading of the elders joyously and sit humbly under the preaching of the Word of God. Two, there should be an expectation of power upon the preaching of the gospel and favor upon every member of the body. Later in Acts, the church will appoint seven servants to make sure the powerful ministry of the word continues through the voice of the apostles. These sevens are what I would call pre-deacons, but I have no qualms with anyone calling them proto-deacons or just deacons. What is important here is the expectation of a powerful gospel witness in a body and that the working of God's grace would be evident in all who form this local assembly of believers. Three, there should be expectation of the sacrificial meeting of needs. Acts is not prescribing the selling of your Victorian or Foursquare Oak Park home or the selling of my newly acquired home in Winfield, especially since I'm not up for going through another buying and selling process again. Anytime soon, please, Lord Jesus, I do not want to go through that again. <laughs> the passage is only describing the form of need meeting. But this is now a second time that we see Acts prescribing the sacrificial meeting of needs, something we will see again in Acts when there is a threat of famine among some of the churches. Sacrificing to meet the needs of fellow saints was a regular practice of the church in Acts and is also recorded as a practice in Romans, Galatians, and 1st and 2nd Corinthians. To you who are looking for a church to attend or maybe a church to which to attach yourself, I am glad to say that many of the spirit-empowered expectations in this passage are realities in this congregation. We have benevolence giving and allotments that seek to make sure that not one of our members goes without basic needs being met. 
People are sacrificing to make sure that the benevolence fund remains abundant and there are lesser known sacrifices happening to take care of things that never come before our benevolent stewards. The only way a need is not met here is that it is not brought to the attention of someone. And of course, that's your choice. I'm also glad to say that we get strong preaching that magnifies the death of Jesus for sinners. Our preaching magnifies Jesus' rising from the dead to defeat death so that we can have power over sin, so that we can have life after death, and the promise of final removal from this present age to an everlasting kingdom of righteousness. That message about the events of the most powerful weekend in human history, Good Friday through Easter Sunday, is the root and focus of everything coming from this pulpit and hopefully all aspects of this church and the lives of those who make this place their place of worship. Like many churches in the West, however, that preaching is primarily internally focused to the baptized rather than externally focused to those outside of the church. It's not that at Calvary we lack the capability for that external witness. We only need more courage, more conviction, and the consistency to do so. I'm especially glad to say that we are not a church marked by infighting. And amen goes right there. Amen. amen. <laughs> we have a general sentiment of agreement. This is evidence of the Spirit working among us. And even where there is disagreement on preferences related to things like how we minister to our children or how we serve our mission partners or what are our sermon emphases, I am thankful that I have witnessed humble attempts to agree rather than sinful attempts to promote division, petitions, or mob justice. We are not perfect here at Calvary Memorial Church, but the sort of striving for agreement, gospel preaching, and sacrificial sharing to meet the needs of others that we see in this text and expect at a church are present in our congregation even if in imperfect forms. That is evident of the gracious working of the Spirit of God. As the story of the church reaching the world with the message of Christ continues, Luke introduces us to a new character named Joseph. The author identifies Joseph by four descriptors. I will explain the four descriptors and then summarize them as one or two important expectations in a church empowered by the Spirit. First, 
The apostles call him Barnabas, a name which means son of encouragement. This descriptor reveals that the leadership is balanced in its gospel ministry, for it is close enough to its individual members to see that this one person, Joseph, is doing much to encourage people. They are close enough to him to attribute an affectionate nickname upon him. The apostles know their people. Second, he is a Levite, which is his tribal identity. Joseph keeps his tribal identity while being identified with the believers. He does not have to lose his Levitical tribal identity as a believer among other Jewish believers. He is authentically Levite. And the only way we can know this is that he told someone or someone asked, and the identity is now known as part of his identity as one spirit empowered. Third, he is from Cyprus, not Jerusalem. Yet he is welcomed into the Jerusalem assembly. This still-fledgling movement is made up of people from various geographical regions. Apparently, without anyone asking, why is that Cyprusian here? Now, in this passage, we get to see how one's Jesus' blood-bought identification rightly relates to tribe and to nationality. Both tribe and nationality are being recognized. They are not being lost or displaced by the Christian identity. Yet, neither tribe or nationality is so significant as to force polarization by the non-Levite believers and residents of Jerusalem. The early church Embrace the tribe without tribalism or over-assimilation. And embrace the national without nationalism or racism. The early church did not have a Borg theology of unity. You know how the Borg operate. We are the Borg. Lower your shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. <laughs> Many churches have a concept of unity that looks much more like Borg and less like Barnabas. I hope we keep listening to one another and learning from one another so that we will stand against Borgism here. Fourth. Barnabas also is a person of means who gives sacrificially from the sale of his property so that the apostles can use it to meet the needs of the poor. With this last descriptor, Luke is casting Barnabas in the story as one full of the Spirit, shown by his generosity in the same fashion as those mentioned previously in the passage. Just as they sold property, brought the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas sold his field and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. 
This Barnabas clip is one of the first places that we see a fourth expectation of a spirit-empowered church. That expectation is that we are entering a place where we can be known as the person that the Lord has made us to be and not have to diminish aspects of ourselves so that we can fit into prefabricated behaviors, traditions, or expressions. You can display who you are and what your life experiences bring to the table minus the sin and pride. We are entering a place where, fifth, the leadership will or should know our needs and the gifts we each bring to the body, gifts that can be celebrated, like in the name Barnabas, and not envied or dismissed when they are not the gifts that you and your closest friends have. In Barnabas' life, the apostles knew him up close and personally. He was not that dude member over there. Neither could he hide in the shadows. As we keep reading Acts, we will see that the believers know who among them is full of wisdom and of the Spirit. We will see Peter stays at the home of a tanner. People gathered at believers' houses for prayer, and the leaders have knowledge of members entering vows in the temple. Later, when Paul greets the churches in his letters, one discerns that he cared enough to know the life details of the people he served. To see that bringing the authentic self into the Christian life is prescriptive in Acts and not just descriptive only, we have other places in Acts in which the ethnic and geographical descriptors are part of the identity of believers. For example, in Acts 13.1, we read, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. No one said, all that matters is that Lucius knows Jesus. Who cares that Lucius is from Cyrene? Lucius cares that Lucius is from Cyrene just as Barnabas cares that he is Levitical. Apparently, Luke and the Holy Spirit cared too, for they included the descriptors as part of the Spirit-empowered expectations in the church. We see the same in Acts chapter 20 and verse 4. A verse, by the way, which the Navigator's ministry used to identify as the Apostle Paul's discipleship group, for this group supported his work as he traveled. Here's what 20 verse 4 says. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus. And Gaius of Derby, And Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. Berean? Thessalonians, Derby, and the Asians. 
I can only imagine what their personal ethnic celebration calendars looked like, especially since in Acts 20, it also records that Paul the Christian hastened to get to Jerusalem in time for the Jewish celebration of Pentecost. His Jewish ethnic identity was part of his Christian identity, and such identities were not hidden or diminished. They were known and embraced. After introducing us to Joseph, the Cyprusian Levite nicknamed Barnabas, the writer juxtaposes him against two persons who allow us to see a sixth thing expected in a spirit-empowered church. Ananias and his wife Sapphira look like Barnabas and all the other believers. Well, at least they hope to look like the others. They too sell property. And they bring some of the proceeds and lay them at the apostles' feet. But as Ananias is giving his funds, he is holding back some for himself. Now, to almost anyone looking at him, his actions look just as self-sacrificing, just as caring as Barnabas's spirit-empowered giving. But Peter sees things differently. Apparently, with some unmentioned insight given to him by the Holy Spirit, Peter discerns that Ananias tells only part of the story of the sale of the land. I will now explain nine things in this passage that combine to help us figure out our sixth normative expectation. So, there are nine things I'm about to describe. I will summarize them to explain one more expectation. First, Peter will confront Ananias directly about his actions, not sugarcoating or glossing anything, nor making a blanket policy to cover general lying rather than dealing with the sinner. Second, Peter recognizes the role of Satan in the life of Ananias and against the church. Peter believes in the reality of an entity that fully embodies evil, that being who troubled Job, and that being who incited David to number the fighting persons of Israel rather than keep relying on the Lord's protection. He is that same being who tempted Jesus in the wilderness and who filled Judas to betray Jesus. From the time of the Garden of Eden, this personal, total embodiment of evil has been at war against the saints of God for rule of the earth, as Pastor Gerald, via Irenaeus, has told us on many occasions. He uses Satan, or Satan here uses Ananias in an attempt to taint the work of the gospel with falsehood. Third, Peter calls out the sin as it is a lie. It is not a mistake or a momentary lapse in judgment. Fourth, he reveals that the lie itself is against the Holy Spirit and not simply against the apostles or the other believers. Seemingly, Ananias thought that he was just lying to the apostles, seeing activities only in the visible earthly realm. He had not considered that the church is the work of God first and a human construct only by grace. 
In Acts chapter 20, Paul tells the elders of Ephesus that Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. In Acts chapter 2, the exalted Jesus pours out the Spirit to form the church that he purchased on the cross, as Peter's Pentecost sermon tells us. It is therefore to the maker of the church, the Holy Spirit, that Ananias has lied, portraying that he gave the full amount of the land when he only gave part of it. Peter here affirms the deity of the Holy Spirit so that we find to be true that ancient formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity, three persons in the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, same in substance, equal in power and in glory. It is against God that Ananias has lied, and it is against God that we sin every time we sin. Fifth, Peter tells Ananias that he had holy options for avoiding lying. Ananias could not even begin to think that lying was his only option. He had complete freedom to do whatever he wanted with the money when it was in his possession. Instead, he used it to put on a ruse so that he could seem like Joseph the Levite in the eyes of the apostles. Apparently, he liked that nickname thing and he wanted one too. Sixth, the Lord judges Ananias through Peter's confrontation. Luke is going to paint this story with similarity to the Old Testament story of the judgment of Achan. As the Israelites finally started moving forward on their mission to conquer the promised land in the book of Joshua, Achan committed a brazen act of sin by confiscating money and clothing at the destruction of Jericho. Luke borrows the very word for Achan's theft in the Greek Old Testament to speak of Ananias' sin here in Acts chapter 5. The Greek word is nephritsomai, meaning to keep back. The Lord called for the death of Achan for the first sin in the promised land to set Israel on a right path as it regards sin and holiness. Here, the same Lord strikes down Ananias for the first recorded sin in the church to set the church on a right path with regards to sin and holiness. Seventh, young men participated in the burial, meaning they were part of the normal dealings of the church and would have learned the seriousness of the work of the church through this experience. With every step as the young men were carrying out the body of Ananias, they would have to remember he was slain by the Spirit for lying. They will do the same with Sapphira's burial. Now, these are only the first seven. We get an interruption in the passage. Three hours later, Sapphira walks in without knowledge of Ananias' death. When Peter confronts her about the amount of the proceeds from the sale of the land, Sapphira now has an opportunity to come clean. 
The Spirit of God already knows that Ananias and Sapphira have conspired together to lie against him, to lie about the amount for which they sold the land. But Sapphira has not yet gone through with a lie, and she has an opportunity to be truthful. This second chance opportunity is an eighth thing. Peter offers her the way of grace. Ninth, however, there is consistency and accountability. When Sapphira fails at accepting the offer of grace to come clean, she receives the same judgment as her husband. One might have argued that she was forced into agreement as a wife in a highly patriarchal society, but Peter sees Sapphira trying to test the spirit's omniscience of her own free will. She does not get a pass on the same judgment. It is proportional to the crime she has committed. Thus, in this spirit-empowered assembly, there are sinful people, not perfect people. There is consistent accountability for sin. There is an offer of grace toward Sapphira. There is a place where they teach younger generations the importance of doing the work of the gospel before the face of a holy God. I think when you put all nine of these items together, the sixth expectation we see is that spirit-empowered churches will be places of grace for sinners. Grace addresses sin properly. Grace does not provide too little judgment. It does not provide judgment for another's sins or judgment or give judgment in uneven measure for similar crimes and similar circumstances. Grace does not keep judgment out of the eyes of the next generation. Least we give the wrong idea about what happens when fallen people are gathered week after week, month after month, year after year. We don't want the next generation thinking, oh, our church is perfect, and then one day something happens and they realize the church is imperfect. They always need to see that the church is imperfect. Grace recognizes the responsibility of the church to judge its own. The church is not in the business of witch hunts or cover-ups. It is in the business of addressing sin properly. The church should not overlook accusations of wrongdoing or of abuse, as it seems so many churches are now doing. But the church also should not rush to judgment. In the New Testament, we read that we are to address matters of personal offenses among ourselves. We are to remove the unrepentant. We are to grieve sin. We are to fence the communion table. We are to rebuke publicly those elders who continue in sin. And we are also to protect them from false accusations. We are to be a place that James tells us that sinners can confess their sins to other sinners. But why should we expect sinners in a place empowered by the Spirit? Make sure we understand what's going on here. This is a passage about a Spirit-empowered church. We see it in 431 where the Spirit comes upon them and the place is shaken. They're all filled with boldness. Peter is going to talk about 
them lying to the Holy Spirit twice. You see the power of the Spirit of God upon the apostles and the way people agree and when they give. This whole passage is about the presence of the Spirit inside the church and what Ananias and Sapphira do do not take away from the presence of the Spirit and his power. Why should we expect sinners in a place empowered by the Spirit? Shouldn't the church be completely absent of sin? In the new creation, yes. In the present age, no. As Pastor Tim Keller writes on this idea, quote, in the Christian understanding, Jesus does not tell us how to live so we can merit salvation. Rather, he comes to forgive and save us through his life and death in our place. God's grace does not come to people who morally outperform others, but to those who admit their failure to perform and who acknowledge their need for a savior. Christians then should expect to find non-believers who are much nicer, kinder, wiser, and better than they are. Why? Christian believers are not accepted by God because of their moral performance, wisdom, or virtue, but because of Christ's work on their behalf, unquote. Oh, we're not here because we're outperforming other, other people, because we are doing more works so that we can say we're good before God. We are here as sinners who have experienced the grace of God. So expect a spirit-empowered church to be imperfect because it has us. It has sinners. Expect people to make such churches up in such a way that we respond to sin with grace with sin-confronting, second-chance-giving, consistent accountability-applying, holiness-upholding grace. I am thankful to be a part of a church that addresses sin by grace. I'm thankful, too, for seeing grace in this passage. Grace is, is there when Ananias and Sapphira are struck down. Twice it says that great fear fell upon the church and upon everyone else. That's grace. People get the right idea about the church. But we also see grace in this passage because grace lets us know that Jesus is there because grace only comes from Jesus. Only through Jesus are sinners saved by grace. Only in Jesus are people who were once lost now found and do the blind now see. Only Jesus looks beyond our greatest faults and sees our needs. Only Jesus, like a flood, has mercy that reigns in our lives. And because of that same grace-giving Jesus, we should expect the church to be a place in which Everyone strives to agree. There's power upon the preaching of the gospel and favor upon every member of the body. 
People sacrifice to meet one another's needs. You can be known as the person the Lord Jesus made you to be and not feel like you have to diminish that. The leadership is aware of your needs and the gifts you bring to this church. And we address sin by grace. May God give us grace to be a spirit-empowered church. Let us pray. We bless your name, Lord Jesus, for the grace toward us in the form of Calvary Memorial Church. Every member, every servant, every attender, every visitor, every friend, every leader, thank you for your grace upon us. May your grace be even greater. May all the expectations of a spirit-empowered place be ours in fullness so that you will be free to send sinners from near and far here to be among us. And they can find not a perfect church, but an imperfect church striving and awaiting the promise of the kingdom. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But in the meantime, Find us faithfully loving you, enjoying your grace, loving one another, and being full of the Spirit. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you like to stand as we...